Chapter 57 On every third tree a lantern had been hung, and a splendid virgin, also dressed in blue, lighted them with a marvelous torch, and I lingered longer than necessary to admire the sight which was of an ineffable beauty. Johann Valentin André, Die Kimische Hochzeit des Christian Rosenkreuz, Strasbourg, Zetzner, 1616, 2, page 21. Toward noon, Lorenza joined us on the terrace, smiling, and announced that she had found a terrific train that stopped at, name omitted, at twelve-thirty, and with only one change, she could get back to Milan in the afternoon. Would we drive her, she asked, to the station? Belbo continued leaping through some notes. I thought Allier was expecting you, too, he said. In fact, it seemed to me he organized the whole expedition just for you. That's his problem, Lorenza said. Who's driving me? Belbo stood up and said to us, It'll only take a moment. I'll be right back. Then we can stay here another couple of hours. Lorenza, you had a bag? I don't know if they said anything to each other during the trip to the station. Belbo was back in about twenty minutes and resumed working without referring to the incident. At two o'clock we found a comfortable restaurant in the market square, and the choosing of food and wine gave Belbo further opportunity to recall his childhood. But he spoke as if he were quoting from someone else's biography. He had lost the narrative felicity of the day before. In mid-afternoon, we set off to join Allier and Garamond. Belbo drove southwest, and the landscape changed gradually, kilometer by kilometer. The hills of, name omitted, even in late autumn were gentle, domestic. But as we went on, the horizons became more vast. At every curve, the peaks grew, some crowned by little villages. We glimpsed endless vistas. Like Darien, Diotalevi remarked, verbalizing these discoveries. We climbed in third gear toward great expanses and the outline of mountains, which at the end of the plateau was already fading into a wintry haze. Though we were already in the mountains, it seemed to be a plain modulated by dunes. As if the hand of a clumsy demiurge had compressed heights that seemed to him excessive, transforming them into a lumpy dough that extended all the way to the sea, or, who knows, to the slopes of harsher and more determined chains. We reached the specified village and met Allier and Garamond, as arranged, at the café in the main square. If Allier was displeased to hear that Lorenzo wasn't coming, he gave no indication of it. Our exquisite friend does not wish to take part, in the presence of others, in the mysteries that define her. A singular modesty which I appreciate, he said, and that was all. We continued, Garamond's Mercedes in the lead and Belbo's Renault behind, until, as the sunlight was dying, we came within sight of a strange yellow edifice on a hill, a kind of eighteenth-century castle, from which extended terraces with flowers and trees, flourishing despite the season. As we reached the foot of the hill, we found ourselves in an open space where many cars were parked. We stop here, Allier said, and continue on foot. Dusk was now becoming night. The path up was illuminated for us by a host of torches that burned along the slope. It's odd, but of everything that happened from that moment until late at night, I have memories at once clear and confused. I reviewed them the other evening in the periscope and sensed a family resemblance between the two experiences. Yes, I said to myself, now you are here, in an unnatural situation, groggy from the smell of old wood, imagining yourself in a tomb or in the belly of a ship as a transformation is taking place. 
You have only to peer outside the cabin, and you will see objects in the gloom that earlier today were motionless, but now they stir like Eleusinian shadows among the fumes of a spell. And so it had been that evening at the castle, the lights, the surprises of the route, the words I heard, and then the incense. Everything conspired to make me feel I was dreaming, but dreaming the way you dream when you are on the verge of waking, when you dream that you are dreaming. I should remember nothing, yet, on the contrary, I remember everything, not as if I had lived it, but as if it had been told to me by someone else. I do not know if what I remember with such anomalous clarity is what happened or is only what I wished had happened, but it was definitely on that evening that the plan first stirred in our minds, stirred as a desire to give shape to shapelessness, to transform into fantasized reality that fantasy that others wanted to be real. The route itself is ritual, Allier was telling us as we climbed the hill. These are hanging gardens, just like, or almost, the ones Salomon de Caux devised for Heidelberg, that is, for the Palatine elector Frederick V, in the great Rosicrucian century. The light is poor, and so it should be, because it is better to sense than to see. Our host has not reproduced the Salomon de Caux design literally. He has concentrated it in a narrower space. The gardens of Heidelberg imitated the macrocosm, but the person who reconstructed them here has imitated only the microcosm. Look at that Rokai grotto. Decorative, no doubt. But Ko had in mind the emblem of the Atalantifugians of Michael Meyer, where coral is the philosopher's stone. Ko knew that the heavenly bodies can be influenced by the form of a garden, because there are patterns whose configuration mimes the harmony of the universe. Fantastic, Germont said. But how does a garden influence the planets? There are signs that attract one another, that look at one another, embrace and enforce love. But they do not have, they must not have, a certain and definite form. A man will try out given forces according to the dictates of his passion or the impulse of his spirit. This happened with the hieroglyphics of the Egyptians. For there can be no relationship between us and divine beings except through seals, figures, characters, and ceremonies. Thus the divinities speak to us through dreams and oracles, and that is what these gardens are. Every aspect of this terrace reproduces a mystery of an alchemist's art, but unfortunately we can no longer read it, not even our host can. An unusual devotion to secrecy, you will agree, in this man who spends what he has saved over the years in order to design ideograms whose meaning he has lost. As we climbed from terrace to terrace, the gardens changed. Some were in the form of a labyrinth, others in the form of an emblem, but each terrace could be viewed in its entirety only from a higher one. Looking down, I saw the outline of a crown, and other patterns I had been unable to embrace as I was passing through them. But even from above I could not decipher them. Each terrace, seen as one moved among its hedges, presented some images, but the perspective from above revealed new, even contradictory images, as if every step of that stairway spoke two different languages at once. As we moved higher, we noticed some small structures. A fountain of phallic shape stood beneath a kind of arch or portico, and there was a Neptune trampling a dolphin, a door with vaguely Assyrian columns, an arch of imprecise form, as if polygons had been set upon other polygons, and each construction was surmounted by the statue of an animal, an elk, a monkey, a lion. And all this means something? Garamond asked. Unquestionably. Just read the Mundus Symbolicus of Piccinelli, which, incidentally, Alciati foresaw with extraordinary prophetic power. 
The whole garden may be read as a book or as a spell, which is, after all, the same thing. If you knew the words, you could speak what the garden says, and you would then be able to control one of the countless forces that act in the sublunar world. This garden is an instrument for ruling the universe. He showed us a grotto, a growth of algae, the skeletons of marine animals, whether natural or not, I couldn't say. Perhaps they were in plaster or stone. A naiad could be discerned embracing a bull with the scaly tail of some great biblical fish. It lay in a stream of water that flowed from the shell at Triton held like an amphora. I will tell you the deeper significance of this, which otherwise might seem a banal hydraulic joke. Ko knew that if one fills a vessel with water and seals it at the top, the water, even if one then opens a hole in the bottom, will not come out. But if one opens a hole at the top also, the water spurts out below. Isn't that obvious? I said. Air enters at the top and presses the water down. A typical scientific explanation in which the cause is mistaken for the effect, or vice versa. The question is not why the water comes out in the second case, but why it refuses to come out in the first case. And why does it refuse? Garamond asked eagerly. Because if it came out, it would leave a vacuum in the vessel, and nature abhors a vacuum. Nequaquam vacui was a Rosicrucian principle which modern science has forgotten. Very impressive, Garamond said. Kasabin, this has to be put in our wonderful adventure of metals. These things must be highlighted. Remember that. And don't tell me water is not a metal. You must use your imagination. Excuse me, Balbo said to Allier, but your argument is simply post hoc ergo anti hoc. What follows causes what came before. You must not think linearly. The water in these fountains doesn't. Nature doesn't. Nature knows nothing of time. Time is an invention of the West. As we climbed, we encountered other guests. Belbo nudged Dio Talevi, who said in a whisper, Ah, yes, Facies Hermetica. And among the pilgrims with the Facies Hermetica, a little off to one side, a stiff smile of condescension on his lips, was Signor Salon. I nodded. He nodded. You know Salon? Allier asked me. You mean you know him? I asked. I do, of course. We live in the same building. What do you think of him? I know him slightly. Some friends, whose word I trust, tell me he's a police informer. That's why Salon knew about Garamond and Ardenti. What was the connection exactly between Salon and De Angelis? But I confined myself to asking Allier, What is a police informer doing at a party like this? Police informers, Allier said, go everywhere. They can use any experience for inventing their confidential reports. For the police, the more things you know or pretend to know, the more powerful you are. It doesn't matter if the things are true. What counts, remember, is to possess a secret. But why was Salon invited? I asked. My friend, Allier replied, probably because our host respects the golden rule of sapiential thought, which says that any error can be the unrecognized bearer of truth. True esotericism does not fear contradiction. You are telling me that finally all contradictions agree. Quod ubique quod ab omnibus et quod semper. Initiation is the discovery of the underlying and perennial philosophy. With all this philosophizing, we had reached the top terrace and were on a path through a broad garden that led to the entrance of the castle or villa. In the light of a torch larger than the others and set upon a column, we saw a girl wrapped in a blue garment spangled with golden stars. In her hand she held a trumpet, 
the kind heralds blow in operas. As in one of those holy plays where the angels are adorned with tissue-paper feathers, the girl wore on her shoulders two large white wings, decorated with almond-shaped figures, each with a dot in the center, looking almost like an eye. Professor Camestris was there, one of the first diabolicals to visit us at Garamond, the adversary of the Ordo Templi Orientis. We had difficulty recognizing him because he was costumed most singularly, though Allier said it was appropriate to the occasion. A white linen toga, loins girt by a red ribbon that also crisscrossed both chest and back, and a seventeenth-century hat to which were pinned four red roses. He knelt before the girl with the trumpet and uttered some words. It's true, Garamond murmured. There are more things in heaven and earth. We went through a storied doorway which reminded me of the Genoa Cemetery. Above it, an intricate neoclassical allegory and the carved words, Condolio et Congratulator. Inside, the guests were many and lively, crowding around a buffet in a spacious hall from which two staircases rose to upper floors. Inside, the guests were many and lively, crowding around a buffet in a spacious hall from which two staircases rose to upper floors. I saw other faces not unknown to me, among them Bramanti and, to my surprise, Commentatore de Gubernatis an S.F.A. already exploited by Garamond, but perhaps not yet made to face the terrible prospect of having all the copies of his masterpiece pulped, because he approached my boss with a show of obsequious gratitude. Allier was in turn approached obsequiously by a tiny man with wild eyes, whose thick French accent told us that this was the Pierre we had heard accusing Bramanti of sorcery through the curtain of Allier's study. I went to the buffet— there were pitchers with colored liquids I couldn't identify. I poured myself a yellow beverage that resembled wine. It wasn't bad, tasting like an old-fashioned cordial, and it was definitely alcoholic. Perhaps there was a drug in it as well. My head began to swim. Around me, facies hermetici swarmed, the stern countenances of retired prefects, fragments of conversation. In the first stage, you must renounce all communication with other minds. In the second, you project thoughts and images into beings, infuse places with emotional auras, gain control over the animal kingdom, and in the third stage you project your double by location, like the yogis, and you can appear in different places simultaneously and in different forms. Beyond that, it's a question of passing to hypersensitive knowledge of vegetable essences. Then you achieve dissociation, you assume telluric form, dissolving in one place, reappearing in another, but intact, not just as a double. The final stage is the extension of physical life. Not immortality? No, not at once. What about you? Well, it takes concentration, it's hard work, and you know I'm not twenty any more. I found my group again. They were just entering a room with white walls, curved corners. In the rear, as in a musée grévin, but the image that came into my mind that evening was the altar I had seen in Rio, in the Tenda de Umbanda, were two wax statues, almost life-size, clad in material that glittered like sequins, pure thrift shop. One statue was of a lady on a throne, with an immaculate, or almost immaculate, garment studded with rhinestones. Above her, from wires, hung creatures of indefinite form, made, I thought, out of lynchy felt. In one corner a loudspeaker— a distant sound of trumpets, music of good quality, perhaps Gabrielli. The sound effects showed better taste than the visuals. 
To the right, a second female figure, dressed in crimson velvet with a white girdle, and on her head a crown of laurel. She held gilded scales. Allier explained to us the various symbols, but I was not paying attention. I was interested in the expressions of many of the guests, who moved from image to image with an air of reverence and emotion. They are no different from those who go to the sanctuary to see the black Madonna in an embroidered dress covered with silver hearts, I said to Belbo. Do the pilgrims think it's the mother of Christ in flesh and blood? No, but they don't think the opposite either. They delight in the similarity, seeing the spectacle as a vision and the vision as a reality. Yes, Belbo said, but the question isn't whether these people here are better or worse than Christians who go to shrines. I was asking myself, who do we think we are? We for whom Hamlet is more real than our janitor. Do I have any right to judge, I who keep searching for my own Madame Bovary, so we can have a big scene? Diotalevi shook his head and said to me in a low voice that it was wrong to make images of divine things, that these were all epiphanies of the golden calf, but he was enjoying himself. 